Paul writing to the Thessalonians, one of the first churches that was founded by the Spirit. And he is full of thanksgiving to God because he's at Corinth and he was thrown out of Thessalonica by those who were opposing the new Christians. And he sent Timothy back to see how they were faring. He was worried sick about them. How were these infant believers going to stand such persecution? And when Timothy gives a glowing report, Paul writes this, one of his first letters, either this or Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote. And we looked last time at a trinity of graces, three things that Paul was especially grateful to God for among the Thessalonians. Do you remember them? Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. And those are the three things we are to emulate. That's the sign of a healthy church. And now Paul goes on to give thanks as he's remembering how the gospel came to these people. He is just amazed at the way that they were saved. Now, I don't know how long ago it was with you when you first heard the gospel, but can you reminisce with thankfulness as to those times? That's what Paul is doing here. And really, it's one uh, long paragraph from verse 4 in uh, the New King James. Verse 4 is added on to the end of the third verse. But I think it's better to take verse 4 as beginning a new paragraph and then that paragraph ending in uh, the last verse of the chapter. So Paul is saying, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And all I want us to do tonight is just have that general overview of how the gospel came to these people, how they heard the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's that that we need. (laughs) So two things. The gospel first came in word. I know Paul says... Our gospel came not to you in word only, but it still came in word. Very important. The word of the gospel. Now, God didn't give his gospel from heaven. It didn't come down automatically. It came through Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They were a mission team that came to this city and what did they do they didn't just sit back and say well let the lord work they evangelized how did they do it they targeted the synagogue and they went there and they had a message that's words what was their message Look at Paul, verse 6. The word, you became followers 
of us and of the Lord, having received the word. And then verse 8, the word of the Lord. What was the message that Paul, Timothy and Silas had? What is the word of the gospel? In Acts 17, we're given more detail. Paul, Timothy and Silas went to the synagogue and what did they do? They preached from the scriptures, reasoned with them from the scriptures. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So it is the word of God. Paul, Timothy and Silas only had the Old Testament. We've got the complete canon of scripture, the New Testament as well. And the scriptures first address the mind. So there is a message. There are words. There is something that can be defined. You can't reason otherwise, can you? It's not some vague message. The gospel comes in word. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13 you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. Aren't you grateful tonight that the gospel can be defined in words? Aren't you grateful tonight that the gospel isn't some human idea? It is the scriptures, the word of God, truth, unchanged unchanging if you live long enough you live to see all the different fads and trends that we go through so when i was a student the thing the issue of the day was a nuclear holocaust it was the Cold War. Things were coming to an end in that regard. And everybody was worried about the world ending through a nuclear disaster. And the pressure was brought on the churches to try and deal with that issue. Now, of course, that has changed. And there are other issues today. But what amazes me is this. The word of God hasn't changed it's truth, as we sang, unchanged, unchanging. Human fads, human ideas, they change all the time. But the word is the same. The gospel is timeless. We never have to tailor the gospel to fit the times we're living in. It's always relevant. Isn't that wonderful? The word of the gospel. Now, some people accuse us as evangelicals, because we believe this word, that we're worshipping a book. People will say of us, you're not worshipping God, you're worshipping a book. Hang on, hang on. We're worshipping God, who has revealed himself in a book. And because we love the Lord, we love his words. Doesn't that make sense? So the gospel has to come in word. The gospel isn't some feeling. The gospel isn't some vague notion about the love of God or about Jesus Christ. 
I remember a few years ago, a church in Cardiff was giving out free bottles of water to people. Not a bad thing to do. But on the bottle of water was a message which says, this is to show how much God loves you. Now, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. I wouldn't mind receiving a free bottle of water, but it's not the gospel. When we say the gospel comes in word, you can actually define the gospel. You can sit in church and you can say by the end of the service whether the gospel had been preached or not. Now, what you have in 1 Thessalonians 1 is the gospel in a nutshell. So what do we mean when we say the gospel comes in word? Yes, it addresses our minds. Yes, it is the word, the Bible, the scriptures that is being opened. Yes, it's about Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Look at what you've got here. Uh, You know, people say today, don't they, you can have your truth and I can have mine. Have you come across that? Or you tell me your truth and I'll tell you mine. So truth is something relative. There's only one truth. There's only one truth. What is it? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well. He put it like this. Paul didn't write a systematic theology to the church in Thessalonica. He wrote a letter. He wrote a personal letter. Yet in this letter, you've got theology. Right? Let me put it in a slightly different way. Dr. Martin went on to say, when Paul preached and when we preach, we don't preach theology or doctrine, that's truth, We preach theologically or doctrinally. Do you note the difference? Let me show you what I mean. I'm uh, indebted to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon here, uh, which I heard when I was a student many years ago. Not in the flesh, but on tape. Look at verses 2, 3, and 5. We give thanks to God... The Lord Jesus Christ, God and Father, and in the Holy Spirit. What have you got there? I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. What have you got there? You've got the doctrine of the Trinity. So the gospel comes in word. There's the doctrine of the Trinity. But Paul doesn't say, I am writing about the Trinity. He simply mentions the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Or what about verse 4? Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. What have you got there? Well, it's plain, isn't it? That is the doctrine of election, that God chose us in eternity. We didn't choose him. We chose him because he first chose us. Isn't it interesting that Paul isn't ashamed to bring up election, even with young believers? as these were, the doctrine of election. And then, what about verse 1? The Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 10. His Son, even Jesus. 
What have you got there? What are those words about? Well, that's the doctrine of the incarnation, a glorious truth that we'll be remembering in a few weeks' time at Christmas. How God the Son became a man. Man there is, we sang on Wednesday, a real man, not a freak. 100% God, 100% human. Can't you see what Paul is doing here? He is doctrinal here. The gospel can be put into words. And then he talks about uh, this Jesus, verse 10, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is that? That is nothing but the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's the death on the cross. Jesus on the cross made propitiation for our sins. He turned away the anger of God, which should have come upon us, but it came upon him instead. Can you see what Paul is doing? He's full of theology here, but it's all blended in a living, experiential, personal, loving way. And then, of course, you've got one of the most vivid descriptions of conversion. Uh, if you look at verse 9, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God. What's that? That's repentance. A turning from sin, from idols, to the true and the living God. And it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And continuing in the faith. And then, of course, to wait for his son from heaven. What have you got there? You've got the doctrine of the second coming. Oh, my friends, when we say the gospel is in word, what we mean is it's not just the word of God that's being preached, but it can be defined, and it can be defined in terms of truth, doctrines. And it's something that animates you. It animates you. Doesn't it do your soul good to feed upon the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Not to be tossed by every wind of doctrine, of ideas, but to be men in understanding, to be grounded. That's why we have a doctrinal basis as a church. It's not dry, my friends. It's not dry. It's life-giving. So the gospel must come in word. That's a given. But, and this is a big, big but, Paul goes on to say the gospel doesn't just come in word. Now this is so important, especially today. Uh, look at how he puts it. Very famous verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. It does come in word, but it doesn't come only in word. It also comes in power. In power. What does that mean? It means this, my friends. Words in and of themselves are not enough. You can have the clearest presentation of the gospel ever. 
you can be the most passionate speaker, you can be the most eloquent orator, you can be the most able expositor, you can be the most persuasive apologetic, and it won't touch a human soul because we need power. Words can't bring life. Do you know what a conversion is? Conversion is a resurrection. We can't make the dead come alive. Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you know what the Greek word for power is? Dunamos. It's the word that we uh, have dynamite from. Now think about it, my friends. When Paul preached in Thessalonica, his sermons were explosive. Can we say that of preaching today? I don't think so. When Paul was waiting to hear from Timothy for news uh, concerning the condition of the church at Thessalonica, he was in Corinth. And uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, puts it like this. This is what he was dealing with in Corinth. He was saying, verse 18, Now some are puffed up. That's what knowledge in and of itself does to us. It makes us big in our own estimates. Now some are puffed up, but I will come to you shortly, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. My friends, we're often too talkative. Think of Mr. Talkative in Pilgrim's Progress. There's so much talk. But what about the power? The power. That's what we need. Uh, there were a group of ministers in Chicago in Tozer's day. And they were discussing in their fraternal whether they should have Billy Graham preach. And there was a lot of umming and ahhing. People were unsure about him. And then they asked Tozer's opinion. And do you know what Tozer said? He paused and he turned to these ministers and he said, Billy Graham can have more of an effect clearing his throat than all of we can preaching. Billy Graham, in Tozer's opinion, had the power. Yes, we need the word, the sound doctrine, but it's useless without the power. And I'm sure we know of Christians, uh, certainly I've had the experience of meeting believers in other parts of the world that haven't had our privilege when it comes to an understanding uh, of the truth, but my, oh my, they know more of the power, and they put me to shame. Let us be careful that we don't judge others for sometimes being mixed up in their heads, but in their hearts, they've got the power. Now, what is this power? What is this power? We need to say this. It's not the power of a personality. There are some personalities, they are, they're just strong personalities, aren't they? 
That, that's not what Paul was. This is not the power of a passionate speaker. There's a big uh, thing today about being passionate, and it's right to be passionate. But this is more than that. What is this power? Again, let me read to you what Paul wrote about his experience in Corinth. Uh, very famous words. 1 Corinthians 2. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. There's nothing here about strength of character or personality, I should say. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Paul could have done that if he so wanted to. He could have taken the philosophers in Corinth and beat them on their own ground. But he says, it wasn't with human wisdom. It was instead in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What Paul is saying is this, I was weak in your presence so that the power was not of me, but it was of God the Holy Spirit. Aren't we too strong? Aren't we too healthy, spiritually speaking? Aren't we too confident in ourselves? For God to infuse his spirit in us. Think of not just Paul. Think of the New Testament Christians. They, they were often poor, weren't they? Materially, they weren't well off. They, they were weak. They were a bunch of nobodies. Think of those in the upper room before the Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. They weren't the great and the good. They were a group of fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were the lowest of classes. They didn't have much formal education, many of them. Paul was the exception. And yet, what do we find? We find by the end of the New Testament, they had turned the then Roman world upside down. How do you explain it? The only explanation you have is what Simon Peter, a former fisherman, said, writing uh, his letter that it's been reported to you th through those who have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. That's the only explanation of the power. You can't, you can't explain it in any other way. Holy Ghost. Upon the word. One of my favorite examples of God's power in human weakness is of a well-known preacher. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He was conducting a mission, a student mission in Australia. And he had laryngitis. <laughs> he came down with laryngitis. That's the preacher's worst nightmare. Laryngitis. And all this famous preacher could do was croak. This is how he described it. He croaked his way through his message. He croaked his way. Now, that's a very visible uh, example of human weakness. And he felt that, you know, he'd let the Lord down. And this is what he realized over the coming years, that more people got in touch with him and said that they had been converted that evening than in any other meeting he'd preached at. Isn't that wonderful? This man, in utter weakness, being used of God. In power. Not our power, but Holy Spirit power. And then, in much assurance. What does that mean? It means with conviction or with boldness. Uh, it's the 
preacher, and if you're witnessing, it's not just preachers we're thinking of, if you're witnessing, there's a freedom, there's a freedom. There's a boldness that's not natural to you. I can think of people who have timid personalities. They are given the words. I think of the early church. Peter and John were arrested. And in Acts 4, they're brought before the authorities. And the religious rulers want to know, what's happening here? Explain yourselves. And they, or Peter specifically, filled with the Holy Spirit, what did he do? Preached. With conviction, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And then they took notes that they had been with Jesus. Can you see this conviction, uh, this uh, boldness, that spirit given? What about Jesus Christ? After Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the listeners were astonished at his teaching. Why? For they taught, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus Christ was different. Peter, John, Paul, they were different to the religious leaders of the day. Because they had the power of the spirits. Oh, are we prophetic in our witnessing? Or are we scribal? Aren't we too professional? How we need, thus saith the Lord. And please don't think I'm only thinking of preaching here. I'm thinking of speaking across the board. You will know what it's like. Maybe when you're witnessing to somebody, maybe you don't even want to witness to the person. But the Lord just opens a door of opportunity. And the Lord just gives you the words. And you're taken aback by the boldness. Um, George Whitfield, who was one of the most powerful evangelists this country produced... He had this anecdote. It's a bit lengthy, but it's worth repeating. He spoke of the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1675. So Whitfield was in the 18th century. So this was before Whitfield. The Archbishop of Canterbury in 1675 spoke to an actor. And he asked this actor, what's the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregation with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real, while we in the church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary. And this is what the actor said. Why? The reason is very simple. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real, and you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Don't we sometimes give the impression that what we believe in, it's not that important? 
I know passion isn't everything, but it's got to count for something. If we really believe that something is true, it's going to show itself, isn't it? Not just in terms of men standing in the pulpit, but just everyday conversation. Oh, I don't want us to get the wrong end of the stick here. The old Welsh preachers uh, developed a technique, didn't they, that they called will. They worked themselves up into a state of passion, and that's not right. That's not real. But don't we need power upon the words? Not human, but Holy Spirit power giving us that deep conviction. Don't we need that? There was a time when prayer meetings would have been times of pleading with the Father for the gift of the Spirit, for the anointing of the Spirit. Haven't we grown a bit silent on that? Should it surprise us then if we're not asking God for the spirits, that the Spirit isn't as abundantly given in our preaching and in our witnessing? Um, Spurgeon, how many steps are there up to this pulpit? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Spurgeon had to climb 15 steps to get to the pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 19th century. 15 steps. And Spurgeon was a large man. And he would have been out of breath by the time he got to the pulpit. But you know what? He took time to climb the 15 steps because on every step he prayed, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. Imagine he prayed that on each step and he meant it. And Spurgeon used to say, I'd rather speak six words in the power of the Holy Spirit than to preach for 70 years without the Spirit. I remember hearing one minister saying to me that the most powerful sermon he'd heard in the open air was somebody standing and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If those words are spoken in the power of the Spirit, the effect that they can have are greater than all, all of our attempts. Spurgeon went on to say, the gospel is preached in the ears of all. It only comes with power to some. Is it coming in power to somebody here tonight? The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die. And the same could be said of our witnessing. But never a soul would be converted unless there were a mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls. We might as well witness to robots as preach to humanity unless the Holy Spirit be with the word to give it power to convert the soul. Don't we need power? Paul said our gospel Yes, came to you in word, but not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy 
Spirit. Now, in case you think that this is just something Celtic, let me quote John Stott, who was as English as you could get. A fine preacher. I had the privilege of hearing him several times and of shaking hands with him. This is how he puts it. The most privileged and moving experience a preacher or a Christian can ever have is when in the middle of the sermon a strange hush descends upon the congregation. The sleepers have woken up, the coffers have stopped coughing, the fidgeters are sitting still. No eyes or minds are wandering. Everybody is attending, though not to the preacher, for the preacher is forgotten, and the people are face to face with the living God, listening to his still, small voice. It's as if we're spectators. You don't see the preacher. It's God, Jesus Christ. Didn't this church experience something of that when our former pastor was laid aside? God taking over, God taking over. In human weakness, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just for those of us who are preachers. I want to emphasize this as I finish. We, every one of us as believers, can know the anointing of the Spirit coming upon us as we seek in a very feeble way to speak for Christ. You don't need to know all the arguments. You don't need to be clever. You don't even need to read books on evangelism. All you need is to speak something of the word in the power of the spirits. And anyone here, by God's enabling, can do that. May it not just be Thessalonica that experienced the gospel coming in word. Always remember that, in word. It's got to come in word. But not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Let's pray that we and other churches all over our city will know what it is to have the dynamite of the Spirit's power so that there will be explosions of grace. Don't you long for that? Explosions we can't control because God is on the move once again. We're going to sing now a hymn from the section on revival, All Glory to God in the Sky. O come to thy servant again, who long thy appearing to know. What I like about this hymn is it blends Jesus' first coming when he was born in Bethlehem with his coming by the Spirit in uh, power. But Brian, you're ready to go. Uh, 360, I think, uh, or 366 if you're listening at home.
Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Break us, melt us, mold us, fill us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. May that grace, that plenitude of grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen. <laughs>